Good morning. We're very glad you're here. As Clint has already said, we want to welcome you. And if you're a visitor with us this morning, um, we want you to know that uh, we count it a privilege for you to be our guest. And um, this booth right here uh, after the service, because we got a lot of things at the end of the service this morning, and I'm probably going to forget to say this, so I'm going to go ahead and say it now. That booth right there is a spot where you can go to get information. If, if you're a person who's looking for a new church home, we always encourage you to make an informed decision. You don't just visit one week and make the decision. You figure out what people believe and what's important to them and what's on the high list of priorities. And so um, we've got some information there, and uh, Clay Petzold will be um, happy to, to help you with that. I'm not sure if anyone else in here has gotten roundhouse kicked in the face by ragweed this week. Um, but my goodness, um, if, if you're sitting there thinking, oh man, I'm tired, I don't know if I can sit through a sermon and listen, I'm foggy-headed, be encouraged, because the guy preaching the sermon is foggy-headed. I don't even know where, I, where I'm doing, what I'm doing this morning, I'm getting my words mixed up. So we'll all just, uh, just kind of stumble through this together, and uh, as I told one of my friends this week, there is no feebleness in God, and I'm really thankful for that, and that's the whole reason we gather. So let's pray. And then we will dive right back into the book of Romans. Lord, we come to you now uh, humbly this morning. Um, you are great and greatly to be praised. Um, to gather and sing your name, sing of your name and sing your praises is the privilege of your people. And um, I pray that we would never see it as commonplace. Um, I'm thankful that we, we live in a place where we do have the freedom to do that. Lord, I pray um, right now for the church plant. Um, I've almost been giddy this morning knowing that as we are singing, so our church plant is launching and singing together for the first time this morning. And it is amazing. And I praise you for it. And so as we always pray for another local church, um, the local church we want to pray for this morning is Cross Point Community Church as they launch. We pray for Lance and we pray for Kai and we pray for Ryan as they lead that church, help them to lead it well. As Lance preaches out of the book of Acts this morning, I pray that he would be a blessing to those who are hearing it, and that there, that there would be encouragement to continue in gospel work together. Lord, I pray also that you bring clarity to what that gospel work is. Lord, we pray for our local authorities here, uh, here and in, in Northern Rockwall there where, where the church is planting. We pray that they would lead in a way that's a blessing to the people, that they're good stewards of their time and of the resources and that there, there would be a government that is leading in such a manner that is conducive to the forward movement of your gospel. And we don't always know exactly what that is, but we trust that, in fact, as your word says, that like the king is, is like water in your hands. And so we, we trust that you're leading them, and we pray um, that they would be led well by you. Lord, in our time this morning, my prayer is the same, that you would give us clarity in the gospel as we consider Paul's words to the church in Rome. We love you. We praise you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn to Romans 1 if you're not already there. Here at Crosspoint, we, we try to make the main thing we do um, in the way of preaching um, expository, verse by verse, where we're working through books. And this is our fourth sermon in Romans. And next week, um, Ben has been working all week, or beyond this week, but this week he got away to, uh, to work on Isaiah. And we're going to be starting Isaiah next Sunday. So y'all can be praying about that, that we would have, be diligent in our studies and that we would be able to bring you um, truth verse by verse as it's been communicated to us from God. And uh, we want you to be blessed by that. So 
This morning, we are again in Romans, and this is our fourth sermon. We had our first two in June and our third one last week. The Roman church is a Christian church. A very, it, this is real. I, I always want to make sure when we, when we climb into something in history that we don't treat it like a fairy tale. I always want to make sure that when we climb into something that is historically accurate and historically helpful, that we climb into it with our eyes and our ears open saying, these are real people. This is a real place. This was a real church. Paul is a real guy who was really writing to this church. And so the Roman church is a Christian church in a very pagan culture. That's our, that's our context. And not just any pagan culture, but the Roman Empire. The history, the commerce, and even the architecture reflects idolatry and worship of created things. That's the setting in Rome. In our first three sermons, we, we learned the following things from Paul. And so I'm, I'm going to recap this a little bit before we climb into our text for the morning. In the first three sermons, we learned the following things from Paul. First, he's very ambitious. Remember the slides that I've had up? We don't have it this morning. Uh, remember, I'm foggy-headed, and I didn't remember to get it for them. But we don't have any slides this morning, but the slides that we've had previous all outline these ambitions of Paul, where it's like, man, that dude is aiming real high in regards to the work he wants to do with the church in Rome and the church beyond Rome. He's ambitious. He wants to strengthen the church in Rome, Reconcile differences between Jews and Gentiles, who are wildly different. Help the poor Christians in Jerusalem, and continue gospel work in Spain. Paul is very ambitious. We learn that in the first verses. The second thing we learn is that he feels that a healthy church in Rome will mean a healthy church beyond Rome. So he's interested in their health because he thinks it will mean healthier churches beyond Rome. And then the third thing is he knows that the gospel is central to achieving any of all the goals that he has stated. Paul's very important on sticking with the gospel. We're going to explore it again more this morning. Yes, this morning you are going to get more gospel. We have not plumbed the depths of it. We're going to go more and more gospel. Last week we considered Paul's use of the phrase gospel of God. Look at verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I almost made the mistake of skipping over it and going on to the next verse, but then I started looking at that little of God tag on the end of gospel. What we found was that that little phrase of God was actually very important as it revealed the nature, the aim, and the origin of the gospel. While the gospel is unchanging in itself, its aim is to bring about great change in the lives of those who hear it. And it never benefits anyone to change or distort the gospel, so we must always remember its origin, that it came to us from God, that He didn't set something in place that would be sort of hard to define through time, but that would be very definable. Because the nature of God is He wants to be known. God is mysterious because we are, we're we're creatures, We're we're not the creator. But His goal is not to just be mysterious, His goal is to be made known. So... If we are tempted to change or distort the gospel, we have to remember its origin. And what we considered last week is that to feel the need to change the gospel is to feel that it's God who needs to change and not us. And I don't think anyone sitting here who's genuine in their faith would ever say, you know what, in this situation, God needs to change. He needs to get me a little more. He needs to understand me a little more. So look with me at verse (coughs) 2. He says, he was set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy 
scriptures. The thing we know about the gospel is that it was promised particularly through the prophets. And last week, we looked at the repeated promise in Jeremiah, and we looked at it again in Micah. This repeated promise from God that says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Over and over again, if you hear gospel promise, my hope is that the first thing that jumps into your head is, I will be your God, and you will be my people. In as much as he is our God, we are his people. There's no gospel option where he belongs to us and we have access to him, yet we remain our own and we remain unavailable to God for his kingdom work. So, (coughs) from this point in the next few verses in Romans, Paul goes to a different approach. The gears kind of change early on in here, and as I was studying this week, it kind of threw me for a little bit of a loop because I'm trying to figure out how do you preach this? When I see what he goes into, I'm like, okay, great. We're going to be in Romans 1, 1 through 5 for like four years because there's so much here. How do you preach this? Because what he does is Paul goes to this bullet point approach in explaining the prophet's promises. Remember, God had gospel promises that he was communicating through the prophets. And as we continue reading in verse 3, Paul goes to sort of this bullet point machine gun, bam, 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 in case... Like, in case you didn't know what he was talking about, he just goes, this, 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 this. And so, let's take a look at what he says there, and then we'll, we'll kind of go on a little journey together. It says that he, he's explaining the prophet's promises concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God, in power, according to the spirit of holiness... By his resurrection from the, je- from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for, th- for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I mean, that's at least 14, 15 sermons if we just consider each one, right? And so I'm looking at this going, man, that's kind of a lot of info. That's kind of a lot. I was a little, it was a little daunting as I'm sitting there. And so as I read through this section, I had a few thoughts that came to mind because there were some things that weren't actually adding up for me as, as a guy who's trying to prepare a sermon for Romans. And so I kind of want you guys this morning, it's a little bit different. I, I hope it's not oddly quirky to where it, you, know, you shut down on me. I kind of want you to join me in my study. I want you to join me in, in what happens when a pastor goes to a text and says, how do I approach this? How do I preach this? Because here's what happened. I had two questions that came up. And so our roadmap for the morning is going to be two questions and their answers. So hopefully when you're done and you look at your notes, you'll have two questions and some answers. That would be a nice tidy thing for us to do this morning. So y'all, y'all join me as you kind of climb into the study with me and we look at this. Here's the first thing that didn't add up for me. Paul doesn't teach doctrine in this manner. The gospel, I think, I think, I hope that we have stated and established the gospel is like really important to Paul, but he doesn't teach doctrine in bullet points like bam, 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 bam. He's very conversational in his teaching. If you've read any of Paul's other writings or if you've actually read through the book of Romans, through his letter and Paul's other writings, his teaching of doctrine is deep and profound. 
Paul often employs what's called a diatribe because his reasoning is so conversational. A diatribe is when Paul says, um, so this is the point. So you might ask, is this true? So he, he asks the question of the point he made, and then he answers the question, kind of like a crazy person, just sitting there talking to himself, kind of going in a triangle there. That's what a diatribe is. And he goes back and forth, and what about this? So if, if, we, if grace increases when we sin, then should we sin more so that grace increases? By no means. You're cra- and and you know, he kind of looks a little, a little crazy when he's doing it, but, but it's for our benefit because he's so thorough in doctrine. He doesn't just present the issue. He addresses the issues with the issue. He's not afraid of, of like really asking hard questions of the text. He'll present the opposite view of the one that he's presenting so as to make his own presentation of the view that he has from God more clear. So if the gospel is so important, why does he seem to present it here in the beginning in the form of a checklist? Why is Paul presenting it in the form of a checklist? Bam, 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 of God, concerning God, of the flesh, by David, um, like, he, why does he do this? What's going on here? Because it's a little bit different if you've read any of Paul's other writings. So that's the first thing that was bothering me. If the gospel's so foundational and central, why treat it differently than other important issues of doctrine? That's my first question. The second question, and, and I want to be careful here because I don't want to, I mean, you don't want to be, um, when you ask questions of the text, you need to ask it respectfully. You don't be flippant with the text and act like, I am so brilliant and bright. And this is so weird sometimes. And I just, I don't know about that. That's not how we present, that's not how we approach the text. But we can ask questions of it humbly. So here's the second thing that was bothering me as I'm looking at this. It kind of feels like Paul's building on someone else's foundation, right? Doesn't it kind of feel that way? Like, like Paul is, in fact, building on someone else's foundation, As I'm reading these verses, I'm thinking, okay, hold on. Paul wants to go to a church that he's never been to so that he can preach. He's heard of their faith because it is is, um, noteworthy. He's heard of their faith, but he had no role whatsoever in planting that church. That is the definition of someone else's work. Yet he's very determined to go there and, of all things, preach. So, I'm thinking at this point, maybe I'm just losing my mind. Maybe it wasn't Paul who said that. Maybe it was Peter or something. Because it looks like he's building on someone else's foundation, but he's told me, I I think he's told us somewhere else that he doesn't want to build on someone else's foundation. He wants to do new work and new places, yet he really desires to go to Rome like the biggest empire on planet earth that has a growing church in it, that's faith is already commendable. So I'm looking at that going, I don't get it. Maybe someone else said that. So I look up the verse. Turns out it's in Romans. Turn over to Romans 15. Romans 15 verse 20. And thus, I, Paul... Make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Do y'all see the little quandary that I found myself in in my study? I'm going, what gives? 
Why is Paul treating the gospel in this manner? And why does Paul desire to go visit with and preach at a church that someone else has established and planted and is currently running? And why does he tell that church, I don't want to preach at a place like your place, but I want to come to your place and preach. You see what I'm saying here? I want us to all really kind of get this little thing. Not where Christ has already been named. Christ has already been named in the church in Rome. What is Paul doing? What gives? Let's start our investigation. Go with me down the trail, picking up some clues. Let's start our investigation by looking at Acts chapter 2. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Thankfully, when we see things in Scripture, they're like, I don't, what is going on? I don't understand that. If you ask enough questions and you dig deep enough, you will always find answers. And the answers are in the text itself. So look at Acts chapter 2. Some of you weren't here for our first sermon in Romans in June. But what we learned was we had to ask that question, okay, so this church in Rome, where did it come from? Who are these Jews and Gentiles in Rome who love Jesus? What, why do they love Jesus? Who, who shared the gospel with them? What, where did they start? Where did the church in Rome start? And Acts chapter 2 tells us. What we found was that the first converts to Christianity that began the church in Rome were likely those who came from Pentecost. Pentecost was where they would yearly uh, gather from all over. They would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the giving of the law. And so this is something that they've been doing for years and years and years, and they're going to Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit shows up. It says in chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation, one of which was Rome. And at the sound of the multitude... And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes? Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But uh, there's always got to be the other people. You're going to rain on the dang parade. But others, mocking, said, they're just drunk. They're just filled with new wine. They're just it's 9 o'clock in the morning, guys. And they're saying, oh, they're, they're just drunk already even though it's 9 o'clock in the morning. So, these are the ones who started the church in Rome. They were at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell. There were tongues. They heard the mighty works of God. And eventually they went back to Rome to start the church. Now look at verse 14. Look what happens next. Right after the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they begin to hear the works of God in their own languages. It's an amazing moment where God is for sure gathering people together bringing them together as a people who be known from here on out as the church, the beautiful bride of Christ. As he's bringing them together, look at what the first thing happens next, the, the thing that happens next, first thing, 
a sermon about the gospel. Peter's sermon at Pentecost. It says, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Interesting that this gospel sermon goes back to the prophet's promises. Remember, that's gospel. God made promises through the prophets. And here, Peter, in the very first Christian sermon at Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit moves, he goes to the prophet Joel. And in the last days... It shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. That that happens this month, in case you are wondering. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the first gospel sermon. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is a gospel sermon. Now, this is an important point that I want us to stop on for a minute because I actually misstated something last week in my sermon. I don't know if any of you caught it, but I said something that wasn't quite right. And I'm really thankful that this week, via the text, I have a a chance to clear that up. What I said last week was, the gospel is not just the part about Jesus. Does anyone remember me saying that? I said, the gospel is not just the part about Jesus. It's creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That's actually a misstatement. Because all of the gospel has always been about Jesus, this foreknown plan of God, a definite plan. So what I want to clarify is, in my head... I was saying, when Jesus took on flesh, sometimes when we say, I want to share the gospel with someone, we just go to the part about redemption. You need Jesus. And we don't say why they need Jesus or what Jesus is going to bring them to eternally. We just have this, you need Jesus, you need to get converted, you need to pray, and you need to receive Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And yeah, Jesus is the answer, but if you don't know what the problem is, you don't care about the answer. And if you don't know where he's leading you, following him doesn't really mean anything to you. So what I meant was, The gospel is not just a part about redemption, because in order to understand redemption, you have to understand that you are fallen, and you need to be redeemed from something. And to acknowledge that we are fallen is to to acknowledge that there was something before that that we fell from, which is the created purposes of God. And to say that we need Jesus, we need Him for something, and that's the consummation part, where He's going to bring us all back together eternally. So, that's incorrect. As stated in these prophecies, every part of the gospel is about Jesus. He was there when God spoke creation into existence and the Spirit was hovering above the waters. He was who we fell from in sin. He was always the plan for our redemption and He is the one who brings us back to God for eternity. What I meant to say was that the gospel is not just the redemption part. 
the Jesus taking on of flesh. And here we see God had a definite plan and foreknowledge with Jesus being the redemption part. So, look at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, I hope you're getting the little points that, remember Paul said about the gospel in the opening of Rome, the opening of his letter to Rome, these points, flesh, not held by death, things related to David. I want you to see these things lining up. He goes, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness. So part of Peter's sermon is quoting the prophet who's talking about Jesus. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. David's tomb is actually, they could all walk and go see it. So that's a really effective example. You're like, look, David's not talking about himself when he's speaking this because, guys, we could all pack up and go on a little field trip to David's tomb. It's still, uh, he's still in it. It's not a vacant tomb. So this is a really effective example in this setting. And he goes on to say, being therefore a prophet, so he's saying David was a prophet, and we're looking at the promises of the prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that Jesus was not abandoned to Hades, nor did Jesus' flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and all of that we all, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David says, David did not ascend into the heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the first gospel sermon after Pentecost. Now here's what I want us to see. Immediately after receiving the Holy Spirit, the new believers who would go back to Rome heard a sermon from Peter about the gospel. And this is the important point. The things covered in that sermon are the very bullet points that Paul covers in his letter to the Roman church. You, you heard all of them. I said them all from Ro- the, the letter to the Romans, and then I said them all as I, as I re- um, read this sermon at Pentecost. So if I was to put like a side-by-side comparison up here, we could go through and see everything that Paul mentioned in those bullet points and everything that Peter mentioned in his sermon at Pentecost. So why does this matter? Shortly after Peter preaches his sermon, Stephen preaches a very similar one, speaking of what the prophets had prophesied because those are promises from God and those promises were fulfilled by Jesus. Stephen, drawing on the promises of the gospel as spoken by the prophets and now fulfilled in Christ, preached and then he was murdered. 
Paul, then Saul, was the official who held their jackets while they murdered Stephen, and Saul went on to ravage the church. We've talked about this in the previous Roman sermons. When they're hearing the gospel, Paul's hating the gospel. So it's interesting that he lines them up in his letter to Rome. What I'm getting at is that Paul's introduction in Romans is not sloppy doctrine. And Paul's introduction to the Romans is also not a deep teaching moment. It's a checklist. It reads like a checklist because it is a checklist. It's an appeal for trust based on agreement of the gospel. He's wanting to partner with them in ministry. And so what he's doing, he gives them a checklist in the opening lines to say, I'm making this appeal to you that we agree on the gospel. Here is why. When Paul says he's a servant of the gospel, the church in Rome would very likely say, Oh, really? In the gospel, the reason that you terrorized our brothers and sisters and ripped them from their homes and put them in jail, when he says, I'm a servant of the gospel, they would like, oh, oh, sure you are. Aren't, aren't in the gospel the reason that you, you, you hurt our brothers and sisters? We must not be talking about the same gospel. We must not be talking about the same gospel. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who's like in sort of the health and wealth thing? And they're like, man, uh, Jesus is so great because I am filthy rich. I love the gospel. In that moment, you may be saying, I don't think we're talking about the same gospel. Or if you have a, a, a discussion with someone who doesn't understand the beauties of the gospel, and they're just like, I'm just a filthy, wretched sinner, and nothing can save me. I'm thankful for the gospel. I don't think you are. I don't know if we're talking about the same gospel, because Jesus redeems filthy sinners. And so Paul's wanting to make sure, hey, guys, we're on the same page. That's the very point that Paul's making. And I find it incredibly telling. Go to this place with me. Consider if you were Paul. How would you have opened the letter to Rome? I want you to think about it. As you sit there, if you were Paul, think about the background. Think about knowing about Peter's sermon. He certainly knew about Stephen's sermon. He certainly knew about Stephen's death. He certainly knew about the persecuted Christians in Rome because he was a trailblazer in persecuting them. He knows about their conversion at Pentecost. He's got his own Damascus Road experience. How would you open your letter if you were the one writing to the church in Rome? Here's what I probably would have done. Dear Roman church, I was on Damascus Road and Jesus straight up showed up. Bright light freaked me out. And Jesus said, stop persecuting me. And when he said me, he was talking about the church. I am forever changed. I was on Damascus Road. I couldn't take any pictures. But if I could, I would show them to you. That's probably what I would say if I was trying to get the church in Rome to trust me. I would say, my conversion was crazy. Jesus showed up and spoke to me and told me to go do some things. So he could have said that. Guys, guys, remember your crazy conversion experience? I had one of those. That Holy Spirit that came upon you at Pentecost, I, the Holy Spirit came upon me on Damascus Road so we can trust each other. But Paul didn't mention either experience. To me, this is so telling. 
Paul didn't mention Pentecost, and Paul didn't mention Damascus Road as he's making an appeal to them to trust him. Why? Because God's people are not united in conversion experiences, they're united in the gospel. So, so many times, man, I'll, I'm going to share my testimony, and all you talk about is your conversion. You're supposed to have like a gospel life that goes after the conversion. We are not united in our conversion experiences. If anyone could have been united in their conversion experiences, it would have been the people at Pentecost and the guy on Damascus Road who had been killing Christians. If anyone was united in that, it would have been them. But we're united in the gospel. It's interesting because what this shows is Paul was far less concerned with their rejection of him and far more concerned with their embrace of the gospel. It was very likely that they could have rejected Paul. And he was far less concerned about that because he was far more concerned with them embracing the gospel. His endeavor in ministry was not, I have to get them to love me. His endeavor in ministry was, they have to embrace the gospel. It's the only hope they have. It's the only way anyone will change. And it's the only way that people will endure eternally with God as opposed to apart from God. Turn to Acts chapter 9. This illustrates this point pretty well in Acts chapter 9, verse 10. In 9, 1 through 9, it's Paul's experience on Damascus Road. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And so Jesus gets Paul's attention. And look what happens in verse 10. In verse 10, it says, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. <laughs> yeah, he's praying. His whole life's been turned upside down. He's praying to the God who just spoke to him. He'll be praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So it's always good to remember, God's always doing far more than we realize. He's always doing far more than we're doing. In our gospel endeavors, in our ministry endeavors, we're doing and we're doing and we're doing. And sometimes we lose sight of the fact that sometimes God's going to a random Ananias saying, hey, there's this guy over here named Saul. He's been persecuting Christians. Don't worry about it. I gave him a dream that you would come help him. God's always doing far more than what we ever realize. But, but I love Ananias' response. Ananias answered, uh, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, uh, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, Lord, uh, in case you didn't know, he has authority um, from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. A Ananias' response was probably very similar to the response of the church in Rome. Um, God... This is a bad guy. If they're reading Paul's letter, they're like, I come to you on behalf of the gospel. They're like, it's a trick. 
No, 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 don't let that guy in. Lock the door. Lock the door right now. He's probably on his way. Ananias' response is, God, this is a bad guy. Not only is he a bad guy, he's a bad guy with authority. Not just any authority, but authority to put us in jail for, for trusting Jesus. But look at God's response in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. He, you don't ever see God responding with, oh my goodness, I did not think about that. Wow. He's, done, he's been doing bad things to Christians? Oh man, I... All right, new game plan. Give me about five minutes. I'll come up with something. No, God says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. God doesn't say to Ananias, oh, don't worry about old Saul. I totally freaked him out on Damascus Road. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's saying, God, I I don't know. This this Saul guy's pretty violent. And God doesn't say, don't you worry about him. He was walking down Damascus Road, and I was like, bam! God doesn't say, oh, don't worry. I totally freaked out Saul on Damascus Road. And his conversion experience will keep him going the rest of his life. That's not what God says. Rather, God says... He is trustworthy because of the gospel work that I've set him apart to do. And you need to know that while I call you to do work, I, God, will continue to do work in Saul's life. That's why Ananias should obey God. Turn back to Romans 1. Turn back to Romans chapter 1. The content of the gospel is more important than the nature of Paul's conversion. That's why he gives them a checklist. The first converts from Rome had a pretty significant experience at Pentecost. Paul had a pretty significant experience on Damascus Road. But the aim of his ministry and the hope of the church had little to do with Pentecost or Damascus Road. It had to do with the gospel. It had to do with them continuing in what they were supposed to continue in. Paul's aim for a healthy church in Rome that would result in a healthy church in Spain and beyond is not to recreate Pentecost or recreate Damascus or just pursue very significant and sensational conversions. His hope was not sensational conversions, but steady gospel. Steady gospel. If you're taking notes, write down steady gospel. This is why Paul's appeal was was verbatim bullet points of the first gospel sermon that the Roman church ever heard. A sermon that even preceded his own conversion. Paul's going back to realities that were true before he knew they were true. That's what you do. If someone asks you a question about God and you know what the Word says, you're going back to realities that were true before you knew them to be true. So Paul's presentation of the gospel here in the opening lines is is not flippancy and it's not a lack of depth. It's particularity to what he knew was important to the Christian church in Rome. God told the church in Rome what was important, not Paul. God had already revealed to the church in Rome, this is who you are now, this is who my son is, this is what my aim is for the rest of your time on earth and into eternity. God says that, not Paul. So Paul has to go back to something that was true before he even believed 
it was true. And he's making an appeal to them saying, it's not a matter of you trusting my conversion. It's a matter of us being on the same page regarding the gospel. So this leads to that second question. Is Paul doing the thing he said he did not want to do? Is he building on someone else's, someone else's foundation? I was thinking, if you read through Romans, one of the significant points is Paul saying, I do the very thing I do not want to do, and I don't do the very thing that I do want to do. Is building on someone else's foundation one of those things? Is that what he's doing here? He says, I don't want to build on someone else's foundation, but I really desire to come and preach to you. It kind of sounds like it. Is he building on someone else's foundation? Why does he feel the need to go to a church that he didn't establish and preach to them and hear from them? And 1, 5 through 6 says this. Romans 1, 5 through 6. It says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are all Peter's words in the Sermon of Pentecost. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We know that at least in part, Paul's calling to the church in Rome is to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Christ among them and then all the nations. Paul's clear goal is obedient faith in every nation on earth, including Rome. Turn over to Romans 15, chapter 20. We read it already once this morning, the beginning of the book and the end of the book. In 15, uh, 20 through 21, Paul says, And thus I make it my aim, my ambition, to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written... Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard him will understand. He quotes Isaiah 52 right there. He quotes more prophecy. He quotes more of those gospel promises from God as communicated to the prophets. Paul's ultimate goal is to continue fulfilling prophecies. He knows what God has said, and that's the work he wants to do. That should be the way every one of us is. You know what God has said. You should be about the work that he wants you to be about because you already know what the prophecies say. We should remind each other of them. For Paul, an ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named does not eliminate the need for a healthy relationship with ascending church. Guys, this is a very important point. Paul is what you would call maybe a frontliner. You've got major metropolitan areas where the church is growing. You know, we're kind of just outside of the Dallas area. There's a lot of healthy churches here. The healthy local church is important. But Paul's a frontliner kind of guy. He wants to be on the front lines. He wants to be going where people don't know Jesus' name, and he wants to be the one to fulfill the prophecy and tell them Jesus' name. Some people are called to stay. Some people are called to go. But we're all called to the gospel. That's what the gospel is. An ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named does not eliminate the need for a healthy relationship with ascending church. This is an important point here in Romans chapter 1 and in Romans 15 and in the entire book. From Paul's perspective, he alone does not have all that the world will need. You have to understand that your calling is to be a part of the people. 
You have to understand that your story is the story of a people. Because if you lose sight of that and you become sort of individualistically prideful, you will begin to think, I have everything that they need. And Paul, of all people, had a crazy conversion experience. He heard from Jesus. He had an apostolic calling. He had significant insight into what God has done and is going to do. He knew the prophets. He heard the sermons. But from Paul's perspective, he alone does not have all that the world will need. As he goes into churchless communities, he wants for the church in the center of the world's most powerful empire to start healthy and to continue in a healthy manner. He wanted them to begin in a healthy, right way and to remain in a healthy, right way. From Paul's perspective, healthy churches should be planted by healthy churches. It's beautiful that this is our text this morning because I've been giddy. Right now, as we speak, our church plant in Rockwall, North Rockwall, is launching right this second. Lance Stinkin' Shoemake is in Acts chapter 1 and bringing the word. And that church is starting right now. Do you know what this church has done to prepare for that? For the last 12 to 18 months, we've been working on our order. We've been working on constitution, on bylaws, on policies, procedures. We've been looking at the gospel. We've been praying as leadership because we believe like Paul that healthy churches should be planted by healthy churches. Those churches will certainly look different. The church in Spain will undoubtedly not be a carbon copy of the church in Rome. If you go to a place that is largely never heard the gospel and you begin a new church there, it's not going to look the way it looks when we gather on a Sunday morning. Don't be a nationalistic snob who thinks the American church is the only way to do church. It's not going to look the same in Spain as it did in Rome. It looked different in Corinth than it did in Ephesus. These are real people in real churches. But the point that they will never differ on is the gospel. That's why Paul starts with it. That's why it's his intro. That's why it's his plan. That's why it's his identity. The point that the churches, no matter where they are, the point that they will never differ on is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, how does this apply to us? On every sermon, we have to see what it says in its context. So we've seen what we've seen from Paul in the way of he is presenting a checklist because he wants them to know he believes the same gospel and he's not building on someone else's foundation. It's bigger gospel work than that. So now we can ask, how does this apply to us? We should never be indifferent about the health of the American church or other local churches. If you see a church struggling, you don't scoff. You don't gloat. If you see fellow professing Christian brothers and sisters getting the gospel wrong, you don't roll your eyes and say, what a bunch of morons. Read your Bible. Maybe they need someone to help them. We should not be indifferent about the health of the American church or any other local church anywhere on planet Earth. And we should never neglect the nations or the lost in our pursuit of the local church's health. They go together. The frontliners should want to hear from us, and we should want to hear from the frontliners. Like Paul, our aim is not to present something new. Rather, we present something timeless. We should be far more concerned about people accepting the gospel and far less concerned about people approving of our ideas or our personalities or our worship music or our preaching styles or our 
stained concrete and, you know, architecture that's so beautiful. Those aren't the things we're, we're dedicated to. We, the local church and the frontliners, are called to global kingdom work together. And we will do this work well only in as much as we adhere, and ne- adhere to and never stray from the gospel. Our culture here, how does this apply to us? Our culture here in Greenville, here in Hunt County, has a terrible habit of explaining their walk with God only as that conversion experience. It would be like someone saying, Paul, tell me about your walk with God. And he'd be like, man, Damascus Road did it for me. Well, great. What about your walk with God? It's easy for many to recite that the day, even the time, the location that they were converted. I remember when I was converted, I was wearing a t-shirt that said, skateboarding is not a crime, because I was hardcore like that at age eight. And I remember, I remember going down, I remember talking with the pastor, I remember going through a class, I remember all of that, that experience. It was important. But if someone asks you about your walk with God, and you, it's a sad thing when many can't say anything about their current walk with God because sadly there just isn't one. You're supposed to be moving in the gospel. So what does this mean for the church? It means we make sure that every convert begins with the gospel and continues in it. Every child, every adult, we don't just get them saved and then abandon them. We continue in the gospel, knowing that He is our God and we are His people. We don't just stop with, okay, He's your God, you're good to go. Go back to whatever you were doing. No, we're His people too. It changes your entire life. And finally, we must never underestimate the reach of the gospel. This is a really important point, guys. You never know when the gospel might be reaching someone who's going to be returning to their home country. That's what the Jews in Rome were doing. They were in Jerusalem gathering for the same festival that they had gathered for for years. And God did something. And the Holy Spirit showed up, and those guys were going to go back to their home country. You never, you must never underestimate the reach of the gospel. You never know when someone's hearing it who's going to be returning to their home country where they don't have the gospel. Or to put it another way, you never know when it might be reaching a refugee who's going to one day go home. Our world's full of refugees right now. I think our president recently said we're going to open our country to 10,000 refugees. Europe has hundreds of thousands of refugees. You never know when the gospel's reaching someone who's a refugee who might be going home. You never know when the gospel might be reaching this new believer who's returning to a house full of unbelievers. You never know when it might be reaching a wife or a husband and they're converted and they're changed and they might be taking gospel back to their unbelieving spouse. You never know when the gospel might even be reaching a child who's going to go home to unbelieving parents. Every time you start with the gospel and continue in the gospel, you have a deep and significant partnership that exists between every member of God's growing kingdom. So it's not just about conversions. The effect of the gospel is pervasive. Our focus is not just on conversions, so we pursue gospel marriages. Guys, that's what we're supposed to do. You pursue gospel marriages. 
And you pursue gospel parenting. You try to have a gospel home. In all of our decision-making, we consider the realities of a creator, the consequences of the fall, the beauty of redemption, and the hope of an eternity with God. These things affect, these facts affect our finances. They affect our schedules. They affect our friendships with people outside of the church. And a gospel life will inevitably lead to gospel conversations. And yes, even gospel conversions. But too many people are trying to have gospel conversions without any gospel conversations that are the product of their gospel life. We cannot get that backwards. If you have, I was talking to my parents last night, and they got to have dinner with a wonderful Muslim family in Dallas. Amazing conversation. Do you know why the leader of that Muslim family wanted to have dinner with my parents and their friends? Because he said, I noticed how you raise your daughters, and it intrigues me. The respect you show to them and the things that you do and the way that you talk to them, it intrigues me, and I would love to have dinner and just talk about it. Do you know what a train wreck that dinner would have been if my parents said, all right, let's get the Muslims converted at dinner tonight? That would be stupid. You'd be jumping the gun. Have conversations. You will not have true gospel conversions without gospel conversations that come from a gospel life. It must be a gospel life that eventually leads to gospel conversations that will eventually lead to gospel conversions. We cannot get that backwards. Last week at the end of the sermon, I marveled out loud that as I am currently studying through the minor prophets, through Romans, and through church history, I am blown away by the consistency of God throughout the ages. The fact that anyone on planet earth still loves God is significant proof to me that there is a God. We are a fickle, fickle bunch. We are so fallible. We are so tossed to and fro by the next wind and wave of whatever appeals to our senses. Through the rise and fall of every empire and many attempts to snuff out and exterminate God's people, here we are. We still exist throughout the world. We still exist in places where the empires have fallen. Like when the Assyrian Empire fell in the book of Nahum, when the Assyrian Empire fell by being invaded by people who weren't even on their radar, the Assyrian Empire was at the peak of strength. And do you know when they found the remains of the Assyrian Empire? The late 1800s. God has wiped empires off the earth and even from the pages of history until archaeologists dig them up thousands of years later. Yet the people of God are still here. That blows my mind. I hope that blows your mind. With the ebb and flow of culture, the ebb and flow of preferences, some people still prefer God. And when you look at those people, it gets even crazier. Because when you look at those people... Their similarities, even across cultures, are evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Just talk to people, live a gospel life and have some gospel conversations, and you will find the consistency of God is shown through the work of the Holy Spirit in people who have nothing else in common but the gospel. Paul's aim with the Roman church is to be consistent 
in the gospel. That's why he starts with a checklist. It's sort of a, all right, guys, I'm revving up to a big letter, and after the letter, I hope to come to you. But right here up front, boom, 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 boom. We all agree on every one of these points. Paul is wanting to be consistent in the gospel. Consistency reflects the character of God, and consistency in the gospel will have a profound impact and effect on the one who hears it. Fathers, don't be inconsistent. It misrepresents God. When you're inconsistent in your finances, when you're inconsistent in your parenting, it misrepresents God, and you have one of the most awesome opportunities to present a true picture of God to your children. Don't be inconsistent in your marriages. Don't be inconsistent in your finances. Don't be inconsistent in your friendships. There's a reason that God talks about the disciplines a lot, because consistency reflects His character. There's a reason that God says, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, because when your yes becomes your no, you're misrepresenting God. So be consistent and know that in being consistent, you are representing God well in the gospel. So for us, continue to pray for other local churches. Their health is important. Continue to pray for the church plant that's launching right now. Continue to pursue gospel marriages. Raise your children in the fear and discipline of the Lord. Put others' interests before your own. Pour yourself out for the afflicted. Give your money and resources away. Not all of it, but at least some of it. Pour yourself out for the afflicted. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Pray for the frontliners and be eager to connect with them over the gospel. Don't abandon one another. This kind of living is what God intended to grow His kingdom through faithful people. You've heard it from Ben a thousand times. It's a three-mile-an-hour walk. Just continue and look what God does because the effect of the gospel is so pervasive. Gospel lives, gospel marriages, gospel parenting have a significant impact on people who see it because it's God's design. This kind of living is what God intended to grow His kingdom through faithful people. Let's pray. Lord, I'm very thankful that you are so consistent. Thank you for being our God. Help us to genuinely embrace what that means so that we can rightly be your people. Help us to care about the health of the church, but not at the expense of those who are trying to take the gospel where it hasn't been heard. Help us to partner well with those who are on the field. Lord, help us in our homes. Help us in our marriages. Help us in our parenting. We are so feeble. We're so, so wishy-washy sometimes, fragile, common. But you are so strong, you are so mighty, you are so unchanging. And I pray that as gospel people, we would just be regularly, daily, moment by moment, trial by trial, conformed to the image of Christ. We humble ourselves before you today as your people. Use us as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take the supper. We do this every week as a means of trying to be consistent. We do this every week, every week as a means of trying to communicate truth. In 1 Corinthians 11, you can turn there if you'd like. 
Paul is writing about the supper and what it is and also what it isn't. And I was reading it this morning, and in verse 17 it says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, Corinthian church, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. If there are divisions among you right now, you should take care of that. Go to your brother or sister. If they have something against you, you, you stop and you go to them. Like, there are phones out here that you can use. You can get in your car and leave right now if you need to. It's that important. He's saying, I heard when you come together, there's divisions among you. We, we don't come together in an unreconciled manner. This is a solemn moment when we take the supper. So he says, and I believe it in part because he says this, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In that statement, he's saying, we can take the supper, but not really take the supper. We're taking whatever our version is of the supper because we distort it like we sometimes do with the gospel. He's saying, when you come together, Corinthian church, you, 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 it's not the supper that you're taking. And then he goes on to say, for an eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Do you, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? There is a way for you guys to take the supper this morning in which you despise the church of God. It's not enough to just go through the motions. never has been. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul corrects the Corinthian church because they're being very inconsistent with the supper. They're coming together, and they're just letting it be whatever they want it to be. They got something to get someone? Who cares? That's my beef with them. Let's have some church. Oh, really? I think your beef with them that's unreconciled, the reality of the blood of Christ that you're not applying to that relationship, might get in the way of your church. Don't go to church and do church over and over again without reconciling. Paul's saying, no, I'm not going to commend you in that. You're being inconsistent. Inconsistency misrepresents God. The Corinthian church is corrected. Their wrongs are rebuked because they're not being consistent when it comes to the supper. But Paul goes on in verse 23, like a good minister, and he says, this is how you move in repentance. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Their supper had nothing to do with remembrance. It was just getting their drink and their eating on and coming together in some ceremony. But it had nothing to do with remembrance of Christ. And Paul's saying, take this in remembrance of Jesus. That's what I was given, and I'm giving you what was given to me. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to distort it. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The supper is not about something sensational. We don't take the supper each week because there's some sensational nature of the supper where it's really Jesus' body and it's really his blood. and it's, just, it's not a sensational thing. The supper is about gospel realities. 
that it communicates. It reveals what Christ has done. It reveals the plan that God had for Christ before time. It reveals what God is currently doing. And it causes us to look back on that and then enjoy the supper and anticipate that the next time that Jesus takes this supper will be with us in eternity. Those are gospel realities that should have a profound impact on your life. Let's distribute the elements. I want us to be you know, as genuine as we can in our response this morning. I certainly don't want us to be flipping about it. I don't want us to have an aim in our response that is anything other than consistent, given completely to the Lord. As I read this morning in Acts chapter 2, we didn't talk about it, but there's a point that I want to bring up here in the supper. And as Peter is explaining Joel's prophecy, verse 17, he says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit. That's when we live in. That, that time, that moment after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and Peter's preaching, that moment was a shift where it was the beginning of the last days. So we currently live somewhere between the beginning of the last days and the end of the last days. And we don't know exactly what point we live in. But that dynamic alone is why we're supposed to be given completely to God, consistent in the gospel, and consistent with other people. That's why we're supposed to live lives in a particular way because we live somewhere between the beginning of the end and the end of the end. So this isn't some scare tactic. That's not a scare tactic to say, are you a gospel person? Because the end might come tomorrow. But by God's design, He doesn't want you to know when. He He says in Scripture to number your days. Know how fleeting life is. I heard a story from someone this week where they were with a friend who died right there with them in the meeting. Life is fleeting. That's not a scare tactic. It's a gospel reality. And so before we take the supper, as awkward as it might be, I want to take a couple of seconds, maybe a whole minute, to be silent. And what I want you guys to do is consider, is your life a gospel life? Do you have any aim at the gospel in your marriage, in your parenting? Do you have any friends outside of the church? Is there any selfishness that you need to repent of? Is there any part of your life where you're saying, you know what, this is mine. You are my God and this is mine. If there's anything in that, I want us to bow our heads and I want us to take a couple seconds to personally repent so that we don't take this in the wrong way and misrepresent God. As a gospel people who do not take for granted the access that we have to God, in remembrance of Christ and in anticipation of His return, take and eat. Take and drink. We're going to continue with the offertory, and it's part of our worship. It's not a break from worship. As we do that, if you're one of the families that's being a part of the children's dedication, uh, we want to let you go ahead and go get your little kiddos and come back. Let me pray, and then we'll have the offertory. Lord, help us to be wholehearted in every part of our worship, including this part. We love you, and we thank you for the access that we have to Christ. My prayer is that this is a room full of people that are being honest and genuine, and in the areas that we need change, I pray for genuine repentance and holiness.
We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.